Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And thank you, church, for being here this morning. It's so good to see each of you. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 today. Hey, I want to, I want to celebrate something with you before we dig in uh, to God's Word. So uh, last week, we collected the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. It's an annual offering we take up uh, every year, and every penny uh, goes to supporting North American Mission Board uh, church planters around the United States and Canada. And so uh, I'm very happy and grateful to say that last week we collected over $5,500 to send to those missionaries. So thank you, church. Amen. And money is still coming in, and it's not too late to give. You can give through the end of April. And so we are very excited and grateful that we get to partner with the North American Mission Board uh, to help send these missionaries to some of the hardest-to-reach places, even here in the United States and some of our big cities here in America and Canada. So I'm grateful. Church, thank you uh, for giving and giving generously and joyfully to that effort to get the Great Commission and the good news of Jesus uh, to every corner of our world. So thank you so much. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless His Word as we receive it this morning as we continue our series. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that we get to uh, be here today and worship You in spirit and in truth. We're thankful, Lord, for the baptism that we got to celebrate. I pray for Alora, Lord, I pray that you would bless her and her family as they continue to walk with you. Lord, I'm so thankful for our church and just each person here. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes and our hearts, give us understanding hearts and minds today to understand what it is that you have to say to us, what it is that you want us to know about yourself and about ourselves so that we can better live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're now deep into the heart of this letter that Peter wrote uh, in the first century to Christians living in Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. And so Peter wrote this letter to Christians, uh, encouraging them to live for the Lord, even in the midst of social ostracism or persecution or mockery or any kind of challenge they may face from the world that didn't believe, Peter's saying, you know what? You got to live faithfully, even in this very difficult world that doesn't believe the gospel, live for the Lord and be a light to that world. And so he kicked off this middle section we're in this middle section of the letter, which is very practical. Peter's giving some really specific examples, and he kicked this off in chapter 2, verse 12, by saying this. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter says, Keep your conduct among unbelievers. And, and Gentiles is just the word he used uh, to describe unbelievers at that time. But he says, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. In other words, Peter is telling us something so important here in our Christian witness in this world. He's saying we have to be very conscious and aware of how we are interacting with non-Christians. We have to think about what we're doing and what we're saying. We have to live in such a way that is 
peaceable with them and displays the gospel. And all of that is in hope that our lives will be such a testimony to them of the goodness of God and His grace that through the Holy Spirit, that will help draw them to salvation in Christ. You see, what Peter is telling us is that the Great Commission, the command Jesus gave all of His followers to share the gospel around the world, the Great Commission is fulfilled primarily through everyday Christians living their everyday lives with intentionality. Man, what if we all did that? What if we just lived our everyday lives with intentionality, knowing that a lost world is observing our behavior and observing our words and our conducts and our deeds? Christian citizens, uh, Peter addressed them first. He said, hey, listen, here's a practical example. Uh, here's Here's what you need to know. If you're a Christian citizen dealing with Uh, an unfaithful or unbelieving governing authority. Here's how you live, right? We looked at that a few weeks ago. And then last week we talked about Christian employees working with unbelieving supervisors in the workplace. See, Peter's addressing these practical aspects of life. And now today we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where he addresses specifically Christian wives living with unbelieving husbands how they can be a testimony to their husband, but also Christian husbands loving their wives, whether they're Christian or not. That's what Peter's talking about. Now, here's the thing about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. You see, Peter is primarily addressing Christian wives who are married to non-Christian husbands. So the wife loves the Lord, wants to go and worship with the church, The husband does not, right? That's what Peter's talking about. But before we can really understand what Peter is saying to wives in that situation, and then he's going to address husbands as well, I think it would be really helpful for us today to understand the theological framework that Peter is addressing these wives and husbands in. In other words, I would like for us to kind of press pause on the First Peter series, so to speak, to preach a topical sermon on the subject and topic of Christian marriage and what that looks like. So this is something I hardly ever do, all right? This is very unusual, uh, but I think this is appropriate, and I think it will be very helpful for us to look at what Peter is saying in verse 1 to wives and verse 7 to husbands, and then have a larger conversation by looking at other places in Scripture where God teaches us about His design for marriage. Because if we get that wrong, all right, if we get God's design for marriage incorrect in our belief, then what Peter's saying in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 will make no sense at all. It's a very difficult passage to interpret. It's a very challenging passage that is a point of lots of controversy in the church today. So I want us to just be faithful to God's wisdom and His truth as a whole today and look at His design for marriage. But I want us to start by looking at Peter's primary remarks to wives and husbands in verses 1 and 7. Now, we're going to get through verses 2 through 6 next week. So we are going to hit it. We're going to, we're going to look at that uh, in great detail next week. So I don't, don't be disappointed. We're going to talk about all of that next week. 
Uh, but I want you to know that, man, I've probably, I have read more and studied more uh, this week on resources and commentaries and conversations uh, than I probably ever have for any other sermon I've ever preached because I'm a little nervous, to be completely honest with you. All right? I mean, here I am preaching about husbands and wives. Just so you know, I ran all of this by my own wife. I was thinking, you know, if I'm going to preach about wives and husbands, I should probably consult my own wife just to make sure, right, that everything is in check. She approved, so we're good, okay? So... <laughs> So chapter 3, verse 1, and then I want us to, so I want us to read what Peter uh, says to wives, and then I want us to read what he says to husbands, all right? Verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And then he says to husbands in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right. Now, next week, we're going to get into a lot of cultural context here to better understand what Peter's saying. But again, today, the larger theological foundation. So there's two phrases here that should prompt us to dig deeper into why Peter is saying these things. Why is he making these remarks, right? So those two phrases are simply this. Number one, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he says to husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, all right? Now, that phrase, be subject, uh, in the ESV, in the NIV, it says submit. So th this term, right, submit, is a great point of controversy uh, in the church world today, all right? It's a huge point of controversy outside the church world, especially with unbelievers looking in at this teaching, not understanding the context as we're going to attempt to do today. So one question uh, that we may ask uh, off, right off the bat would be, okay, Peter tells wives to submit to their own husbands. What grounds does Peter have to say that? Uh, he tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way and showing them honor. What is he talking about to husbands? What's their role? What's the expectation there? Is this just for husbands and wives in the ancient world? Or was this meant to be cross-cultural and cross-generational, right? And what does this even mean, right? I mean, that's really the number one question. What does this mean what Peter is saying? Well, today we're going to seek to answer those questions. So today's main point, if you're taking notes, today's main point is this. Peter's teaching is rooted in God's design for husbands and wives. Peter's teaching in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, can only really be understood in the greater context of God's design for husbands and wives. And you can really summarize that design in three points that we're going to look at today, both of which are rooted in God's creation of man and woman and God's gift of the gospel to us, the death and resurrection of Jesus, all right? So number one is this, men and women are equal in essence and value. This is the first truth we see in the scriptures about men and women. This is the first truth 
we see about God's design for a marriage. Men and women are equal in essence and in value. Look at Genesis 1.27. So to understand this, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of time when God created a man and a woman. And here's what, here's what Moses said about that. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So what we see here is so vital to understanding not only marriage, but the difference between a man and a woman in life in general, not just a difference, but an equalness. Look at what it says. Male and female, He created them in the image of God. Men and women both equally reflect the character of God. Men and women both equally reflect the character of God. We are equally made in His image. One is not inferior to the other. One is not better than the other. Men and women both are equal in our essence, in our being, in who we are. We are both equally valued and worthy by God. We are both equal recipients of His grace because we are both image bearers of Him. So that's the first thing we have to see before we go any further to talk about a marriage. Men and women are equally created in the image of God. We are equal in essence and value. All right, number two. The second truth we see rooted in God's creation is that husbands and wives are designed to complement one another. Husbands and wives are designed to complement one another. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now it's interesting to note that this is the first time in God's good creation where he looks at it and says something's not right, or in other words, something's not good. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, the word used here for helper is often misunderstood at best, and at worst, people wickedly and incorrectly use this word to make women feel inferior as if their only role is to help around the house. As Tremper Longman says, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know why? The original Hebrew word there for helper, all right, that original word is ezer. So the English transliteration would be E-Z-E-R, ezer. And that is the same word in the Bible used to describe, guess who? God himself, especially in the Psalms, helper, right? And in military contexts in ancient times in the Hebrew language, that word was used to describe an ally. So this is telling us that God was making a complementary partner for Adam, an ally, an equal. Yet, there were some noticeably different things going on, right? So not just biologically, right? I mean, you look at Adam, you look at Eve, they're different. They're noticeably different. But there's something else different, not just biologically, but in the roles that God 
Himself gave them to play in His creation. So, where Eve perhaps would be weak in one area, Adam gave that as a strength, or I'm sorry, God gave that as a strength to Adam. Where Adam is weak in a certain area, God gave that as a strength to Eve. You see, God ordains them. He ordains them as equal partners in essence and value to actually complement one another by helping each other play different roles that go together. By living out certain roles that lift each other up in something God calls a marriage. In Genesis 2.24, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there is a complementary uniting of a husband and a wife when they join together in marriage. And it's a picture of God and His design. Now, the third thing we see rooted in creation and the gospel is that husbands and wives are given distinct roles to play within marriage. So men and women are equal in value and worth, equally bear the image of God. Husbands and wives are created to complement one another. That is God's design. He made us that way. And then thirdly, we see that He's also given us distinct roles to play within marriage. Now, this is where we come back to what Peter was saying. So let's go from Genesis now back to that context Peter's living in in the first century. And here's what he says to wives. In verse 1, he tells them to be subject or submit to your own husbands, right? Not to someone else's husband, to your own husband. But he also has something to say to husbands. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Now, it would be helpful here to also look at what Paul taught about this, because Paul gives even more detail, which we don't even have time to get into all of that today, but Paul says some really great truth very succinctly that Peter, his teaching here aligns perfectly with what Paul said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you look at Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 24, Paul says this to wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now then he says this to husbands about their role. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he summarizes this in verse 32. He says, this this thing called marriage, this mystery is profound. And Paul says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we're going to talk about what all these words mean in just a second. But what we need to know for now is Paul here is giving us the reason. Paul is giving us the reason for what Peter is referring to in chapter 3, verse 1 and 7. Because what they both agree on is that marriage is designed. It's not something that humans came up with. And it's very rare that we see one living out this design in today's world, 
but that doesn't negate the design. God designed marriage for what purpose? You ready for this? To show us what he is like. God designed marriage to show us what he is like. Now listen, you can't miss this. If you miss that point, if you miss this point, right, then anything Peter says or anything Paul says in Ephesians 5 is going to very, is probably going to disturb you. It's going to, it's really going to not make sense. And, and these passages are probably going to be very disconcerting. But if we understand this great truth that God made marriage, the institute of marriage, to show ourselves and an unbelieving world what He is like, that our marriage is really not even about us, that's when all of this starts to click. That's when all of this starts to make sense. As we start to understand the purpose God has given in marriage, we begin to understand what these verses really mean. So a lot of people... Uh, come into marriage and thinking that it's all just about romance, right? And so if you go into your marriage thinking that, you know, it's all the lovey-dovey stuff, well, it doesn't take long for some of that to wear off, right? And you start to realize, okay, well, maybe it's harder than just the lovey-dovey stuff, right? It's not just romance, right? We don't enter a marriage thinking that. A lot of people think that it's just good teamwork, Right? And so if we're just a good team, we'll figure it out as we go. But then over time, you realize that maybe that doesn't work. And then some people think, well, it's just good compromise, right? Give and take. Okay, there's truth there, sure. But if that's all you think it is, well, over time, that's going to fade away as well. And even if you think it's just about your kids, if that's the real reason you're still together just for the kids, that's not going to work either. And what I'm trying to get at here is that we, we can start to see why, we can start to see why God has given distinct roles for husbands and wives and how that is a good thing because they point each other to God. There is a firmer foundation than any other thing the world could tell us about marriage. Whether you're hearing it from a friend or a coworker or reading a book about it or watching something on the Today Show. All of those things, nothing can give us the firm foundation of a true, biblical, God-ordained and designed marriage as what he has saying, what he is saying about who we are, and that the purpose of it is to reflect him and his glory and point an unbelieving world to him. So, what are those God-given roles that he's given husbands and wives to play? I want us to spend our rest of our time this morning talking about those things. So you can really summarize those roles with one sentence. You can summarize it in one sentence. You could say this, wives sacrificially submit as husbands sacrificially lead. Wives sacrificially submit as husbands sacrificially lead. Now, I love how Kathy Keller, how she points out that both I think this is great. Both husbands and wives are looking to the same person for this example. Both husbands and wives are looking to Jesus for the example of the role that they have been given to play. Kathy says both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority. Jesus in his sacrificial submission. So I think it's so vital for us to look at the life and example of Christ 
to see men and women, husbands and wives, to see, right, what role it is that we are following Jesus in. He has led the way, right? So again, you have to tune out what the world is saying on TV or something on a blog that you've read on the internet. We've tuned that out for a second, and let's look at the example of Jesus himself. How has he laid the way, how has he paved the way for us and laid the foundation for us to follow in his steps? Well, number one, Jesus sacrificially submitted to the Father. Jesus sacrificially submitted to the Father. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 on the screen with me. Paul is talking about the essence of who Jesus is, but also his sacrifice and how he submits to the Father here. Listen to what he says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do you see that, though? See, Paul is very clear. Jesus is equal with God the Father. Jesus is equal with God the Father in essence and importance in the Trinity. Jesus is no less God than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equally God as the Father and Jesus are. He is no less God or divine in essence and importance as they are. Yet... God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit play different roles. They have different roles to play. And here in Philippians 2, we see one of those roles. Jesus is taking on a submissive role in this passage. I mean, think about that. This is really fascinating to think about the Trinity, the God we worship, the one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in three persons, We worship Him and Him alone, and this is who He is. He is one, but look at this role that He plays as Jesus the Son submits to the Father's will. Think about that. Jesus had all He could ever want. He was in heaven, right? He was in heaven with all the riches of His glory. And He gives all of that up. And He comes to earth to take on this submissive role, and we see this in other parts of the New Testament. Think about Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus uh, was crucified, Jesus prayed to the Father, right? He said, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, right? What is he doing in that moment? Jesus, the creator of the universe, is submitting voluntarily, right? It's It's not by force. It's not by coercion. God the Father's not forcing Jesus to do this. Jesus is sacrificially and voluntarily submitting to that Father's will. Wayne Grudem is a a great theologian I respect, and he says this. He says, Though all three members of the Trinity are equal in power and in all other attributes, the Father has a greater authority. He has a leadership role among all the members of the Trinity that the Son and Holy Spirit do not have. So, in a marriage... The man's role is like that of God the Father, and the woman's role is parallel to that of God the Son. Jen Wilkin is one of the uh, best Bible teachers I know of, and she says this about submission. She says, biblical submission is about meekness. It's not about weakness. 
It's about meekness or strength under control shown clearly to us in the example of Christ. So wives are looking to Jesus and following His example as the church submits to Jesus' leadership and as Jesus submits to the Father's leadership. So wives submit to their husband's spiritual leadership as equals, as equals voluntarily to show the world in a sacrificial way what Jesus looks like in his gospel and in his love. But husbands, we have to look to Jesus too. Wives are following Jesus' example. Husbands are following Jesus' example. And that brings us to the second point about Christ. Jesus sacrificially leads his people. Jesus sacrificially leads his people. Now, here's the the problem in our world. It's very rare that we see good leadership. It's It's very rare that we see humble character in a leader. Right? And I'm not talking about just politics. I'm talking about anybody. It could be your supervisor at work, anyone. It could be your, you know, your kid's t-ball coach right? who's just yelling at the kids and throwing things. Right? Somebody get that guy off the field. We, it's so rare that we see good, biblical, humble leadership with a servant mentality, which is exactly why we have to tune out all the bad things we've experienced, which I know is not undermining that at all. I'm just saying we have to tune out whatever we've been told or whatever we have experienced in an awful way about bad leadership and focus best we can on the leadership of Jesus and what that looks like. He is our only example. He is our only example. And here's what Paul says to husbands in light of that in Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so how did Christ love the church? I mean, think about that. Here's how Christ loved the church, husbands. This is your example. Jesus sacrificed everything for her. To the point of his own death, He sacrificed everything for her. her. He gave up his riches and glory and comfort in heaven to come to earth and be born in poverty. He was executed unjustly and bore the penalty of our sin for us in our place as our substitute. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus is calling us to, husbands. It is not one of comfort and ease. It is one of complete service and sacrifice. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he was in this little house, a two-story house somewhere in Jerusalem. On the night before he would die for the sins of the world, the creator of all things is stooping down on his hands and feet and on his knees, washing his disciples' dirty, nasty feet. Why on earth would Jesus do such a thing? Because he is telling them, as he says in Mark 10, verse 45, he is telling them, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus gave up everything for his bride, 
The New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ. He gave up everything, not by authoritarian rule, not by demanding respect or coercion, rather sacrifice and service defined his love for his bride. So, let me ask you, husbands, right, for those of you that have been sleeping to this point in the sermon, wake up. All right, wives, nudge them really good right now. This is the chance, right? Listen, does that kind of sacrifice and that kind of service define the way you love your wife? Is that how you treat her Is that how you lead her? You lead by serving. You lead by sacrificing, pointing her to the example of Christ. Just as she is pointing you to the example of Christ. You're both following Jesus in the roles he played before us. And let me be clear. I want to be very clear this morning that this this sacrificial leadership, husbands, is never domineering and under no circumstance can this ever be abusive. So so wives, a word to you, if that is the situation that you find yourself in, you need to remove yourself from that and seek the proper help immediately. Otherwise, husbands who are seeking to live out this faithfully and biblically as Jesus has exemplified for us. If that's you this morning, if that's you this morning, I encourage you to step up. To step up and be the spiritual leader of your home. Lead sacrificially with a servant's heart like Christ by loving and giving up what you want. Give up what you want. Give up your desires so that you're someone worth following. Any other way, any other way is not God's design. And in fact, will point many people, namely your wife, away from the gospel. So husbands, we've got to get this right. But, but do you see the beauty in all of this? Do you see the beauty in this? God designed marriage in such a way that when both husbands and wives are looking to Jesus as their example, then together, together as one flesh, they become an example to an unbelieving world what the love of Christ really looks like. What a privilege, what an honor it is to show the world in that one flesh Union as equal partners, both following Jesus, what salvation and the gospel and God Himself really looks like. It's a beautiful design that God has given us. And it's only when we begin to see this true purpose in our marriages that we will learn to love the roles God has given us to play. So, in closing this morning, I want to just say a word about what this looks like, uh, this eternal truth that's, that's good for all time, right? From the creation of the world till now, 
What does this look like, though, in the 21st century American Christian home? Well, guess what? There's almost no details in the New Testament about practical examples of what this looks like in the home, in a marriage, right? So, so the New Testament actually gives us these principles, right? These are principles and truths that we seek to live out. But in our, within our marriage, in our homes, right, we are seeking to apply those truths with our own wisdom, okay? So listen, uh, the principle is this. Both husbands and wives are, are looking to Jesus, right, as their example, as we talked about, and the roles they've been given to play in marriage. But you decide together what that looks like in your house, okay? So just one common example is, okay, well, who, you know, who should manage the finances, right, of our house? Look, I think that's an easy answer. Whoever's better at it, right? Uh, for us, that's Christy, okay? You know why? Because she's really skilled in that area, and I am terrible at numbers and math. I can preach a sermon, but do not throw numbers at me, okay? I will look at you like you're speaking in another language. If you do, give me a calculator, right? Like, that's just it, right? It's a simple, that's a simple solution, okay? But if you, here, here's the kicker. If you both, if both of you are sacrificing, following the role of Jesus, right? If both of you are doing that and sacrificing your wants and your desires for the betterment of the other person, then you'll find yourself not arguing so much about who does what. Instead, there will be an eager sense and, and anticipation to serve and love each other in the same way Christ has done for each of you. That's the model that he's given us. Now, I do want to say a word to anyone unmarried here today, whether you're widowed or single or divorced, anybody here, who's not currently in a marriage, listen, I want you to know that Jesus is your example too. This applies to all people, all of his followers, across all generations. We all look to Christ as our example. You point people to the gospel no less than a married person, all right? Even though that's the context of our sermon today, you point people to the gospel just as much as they are. You know what? Think about Paul and Jesus himself, right? Jesus was never married. Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, was never married. Look what they did. They are following, right? They are reflecting God's glory just as much as anyone else. So no matter, no matter where you are currently in your stage of life, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, married or not, all of us, all of us are called to represent Christ in this world in whatever role he's given us to play. So next week, I think we're ready now. We can move on. And we're going to talk about a very difficult subject next week. We're going to talk about what it looks like for a Christian spouse to live with a non-Christian spouse. And it's difficult. I want you to approach that text next week prayerfully because we're going to have that conversation. But it's good what God has given us and it's good what he says. And so we're going to look at that next week. But in our marriages, may we all be found faithful, following not what we've heard or seen, but the example Christ has laid before us all.